Uh, next week we'll finish up Genesis chapter 2. And, um, and then the following week we'll get into Genesis chapter 3. should be great to talk about the fall of man. So over the last couple of weeks and then through the next week, we're going to see God create man. Uh, God give man a place to live. God give man a job to do. And God give man a companion to share it with. To be special. That's next week, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And here's where we are so far. So far, we, we know from the word that before anything else existed, God was. Significant. Before anything else existed, God was. Everything that, that we know is post-God and is because of God. So we do not believe that the unintelligent has led to the intelligent, that the impersonal has led to the personal, that nothing has led to something. We believe there was intelligence. We believe that there was personal. We believe that there was something great, that something great was God. And he has existed eternally as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before we ever showed up on the map. We also read that God then, at a point in time, actually the beginning of time as we know it, that God began to speak things into existence. So he spoke into nothing and he made something. And so we've studied and looked at his work week, right? Seven days total, six days God works, one day rested. But in those six days, God took what was formless and what was empty and God made everything that we know Today, So because of that truth, we know that life starts with God and life starts with good. Okay, as you read your Bible, you will see as it backs us up to the beginning that life starts with God and life starts with good. In other words, God is at the beginning, not just matter, not the absence of matter, but God exists even before the matter. Life starts with God as well, as we're going to see even more so today in chapter 2, life starts with good. You and I know that everything is not good today. We may say silly things like life is good, but then inside we say, no, it's not. Don't worry, be happy, but we know there are plenty of things to worry about. Okay, we may even think or believe some of you are deceived and think that you are good. And at the best, you're good on a horizontal level when you compare yourself to really bad people. But on a vertical level, when you look at who God is, when you look at who made you and what he requires of you, the reality is that we're not good. And our own soul testifies to us that we are not as good as we wish that we were. Okay, that is all the result of what we're going to look at in a couple weeks. Genesis chapter 3, when the whole world comes crashing down. When sin enters the world. But what we're reading now in Genesis 1 and 2 is that life starts with God and life starts with good. Genesis chapter 2, life is good, right? Adam was the only one who could wear the t-shirt. He was the only one that could have the bumper sticker that said life is good. It really was good. It was good for two reasons, what he had and what he didn't have. He had God and he didn't have sin. He had God. He was in perfect communion with God. You have been built for communion with God. And sin 
disrupts your communion with God. Sin disintegrates your communion with God. Sin destroys your communion with God. Adam, at one point, had no sin. I think it was about four hours. But he had no sin. And he walked with God in the garden and shared this perfect communion with his creator and maker and life sustainer. He had this perfect communion with God. And there was no sin to disrupt that, no sin to disintegrate that, no sin to destroy that. That's why Derek Kidner in his commentary, he says about Genesis 2, this is the felicity of man. Okay, this is the happiness of man. This is as good as it gets pre-sin, pre-fall. And here's what's interesting about that, I think. That we live in a culture today that desperately wants to be happy. I mean, we want felicity. We want that emotion. We want that high. We want that contentedness. We want that satisfaction. We want that feeling. We want that for those that we care about. We want those for those that we love. We are people who want to be happy. Now, in conjunction with that, we are also a godless people. We're a godless people. And by godless, I just mean that God is in in the modern Human, psyche, mind, God is, is, is not there. We are indifferent to God. We are rebellious to God. We could care less about God. We make up our own ideas of God. We invent our own gods. And we do not want to go to God's word to learn anything about God. And then we wonder why we're not happy. Genesis 2. Pre-sin, here is man happy before God. God made him and it was good. He says at the end of this account, chapter 1, it is all very, very good. Today, two questions are answered in in chapter 2. Not just two questions, but two questions that we're going to look at. Who are we and what are we supposed to do? Questions that man has been asking for millenniums. Okay, Genesis 2 speaks to our identity as human beings. It answers the question, who are we? Genesis chapter 2 speaks to our mission or our purpose or our mandate. In other words, what are we here to do? Answers both questions from God to us. As usual, though, we are way in over our heads. This is why we pray at the beginning of every sermon. We pray as an acknowledgement that we're in over our heads. We are trying to understand things. With the book of Genesis, trying to understand beginnings and trying to understand origin. And we simply will not understand these things if God does not help us. Some of you are proud, I know. Some of you are proud and you think you don't need God and you think you don't need his word and you think that your mind is supreme. That's not true. It's not true. You have a maker. You have a creator. You have a sustainer. And if he pulls back, your life is done. He's breathing life into you right now. He's the author of your beginnings. He's the author of all your days. And so our study in Genesis is really going to God and saying, God, please give us understanding. 
Help us understand who you are, who we are, what this world is, what our purpose is. And thankfully, he answers many of those questions. He answers enough of the questions so that we have plenty to bring him glory and honor in this life. So because we're in over our heads, let's pray and ask him to help us now. Good Father in heaven, thank you for watching over us. Thank you for loving us as much as you do. Thank you for, as we sung about today, the grace that you have poured out on all of mankind, the love you've poured out on all of mankind. You send your rain. You give us fresh air to breathe, good food to eat, good water to drink, friendships. God, thank you for the good things you give us. God, for those of us who um, have become your children, for those of us who have been adopted into your family, we have been given more than we can bear. We thank you, God. Thank you that you have become our father, our dad. Thank you that you are a good father. Thank you that you've given us uh, so much truth. Thank you for you've given us your Holy Spirit, the ability to follow your truth and to understand and to listen and to obey. Thank you for giving us one another. Thank you for adopting other children into this family that we could have brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters. You've been so good to us, God. God, help, help us today to, to disconnect um, our lies that we have believed from, from the truth of your word. God, we pray that the, uh, the information that we have accepted as truth that is not truth would be shown for what it is today in our hearts and that your truth and your word would shine brightly within us, that you would illuminate our understanding, that you would give us the ability to conceive things we would otherwise not conceive. Pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit, God, please, to the brim. Uh, that I could speak with authority and that I could speak in a way that is helpful for my friends here today, every one of them. We pray this in the great name of your Son, who is Jesus the Christ. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. You may have asked yourself this question if you read ahead this week or you've read Genesis 2 before or you've heard the buzz. Are there two creation accounts are there two different creation accounts that has been an accusation that critics have brought against genesis 1 and 2 for a really long time because you have one account of creation in chapter 1 that we read about and then you have another account of creation here in chapter 2 And many skeptics have said, well, you've actually got two different creation accounts. We're going to look and find that the name of God is different in chapter 1 than it is in chapter 2. And so many have said, well, this is a cut and paste job. Somewhere along the line, someone just got this from this document over here. They imported it into the Bible so that Christians could strong-arm people into believing what they wanted them to believe. And so there's some questions we have to answer. We need to understand what it is that we're about to read in chapter 2, verse 4 and following. And we've got to understand, are these two creation accounts? Was this not a part of the uh, autographa, the original manuscript? Has this been imported in here by man? Because if that's the case, then we don't want to listen to it. But if it's from God, then we want to listen. Are there two accounts of creation? The answer is no. All right, let's move on. There are not... 
two, well, it's not that easy. I just say it and you believe it. There are not two accounts of creation. One reason we know this is that Jesus did not believe that these were two accounts of creation. If you look ahead to Matthew chapter 19, you remember that Jesus is talking about divorce. He's talking about marriage. And he grounds what he says about marriage in what God says about marriage in Genesis. And in one chapter, in two verses, verse 4 and 5, as Jesus is explaining marriage, he quotes from chapter 1 and chapter 2. Okay, so he sees them as one account of God's creation of mankind. The other thing we have to deal with is the difference in names. If you read chapter 1, verse 1, you read that in the beginning, God, and then you have that creation account. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, before you have this creation account, you have in the day that the Lord God made. And it's true, those are different names. So critics have said, you see, you see, it's not even the same God. This is a creation account by some other God. This is not two different gods. Elohim in chapter 1, Yahweh in chapter 2 are two names of one God. They're just two different names. Our God has different names that he goes by. We should all understand this because all of us, including myself, we have different names that we go by. Not aliases. I don't have aliases, but I do have different names that I go by. Okay? Pastor Eric. Eric. Daddy. These are not different people. Same person. But depending on who's talking to me, I may bear a different name. So, my kids do not... Come out to my office in the morning and say, good morning, Pastor Eric. That would be weird and cultish. They don't do that. My wife doesn't. My wife also has names for me. We won't talk about those. But she doesn't follow me around, you know, and call me Pastor Eric. If Pastor Eric nourished me with the word of God today. That doesn't, it's not, it'd be nice. It doesn't happen. And she has names that she calls me. My children have names they call me. You don't call me daddy. That would be awkward. Please don't. You don't call me daddy. Different names. The name Elohim that you have in chapter 1 is the general name for God. It is His name as depicted to the world and to the nations. He is this one singular great God. He is Elohim. But in chapter 2, you have His personal name. Very similar in the way that my children call me daddy. God's family, God's people, God's children, Adam, Eve, Jacob, Israel, they called him Yahweh. And this was their personal name for their God. Elohim, his general name. Yahweh, his specific name. The name by which those who have deep affection for him call him. Not two gods, two names of one God. So what you have, what you have in in, in these two accounts of creation in in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is chapter 1 is a comprehensive account of creation, right? Days 1 through 6, a look at all that God did in that work week, 
Think of it as a, a panoramic view of God's creative work. And think of Genesis chapter 2 now as the lens being zoomed in onto the last half of day 6. That's what chapter 2 is. Chapter 1, comprehensive panoramic view of creation. Chapter 2 now zooms in. Because remember, Moses is writing to the people of God. And so he now gives specific detail in regards to God's creation of people. He wants to to backfill the account that's already there and give more details about what God did when he created mankind. So day six, remember in the morning, God makes the animals. And by the afternoon, he is creating Adam. So chapter 2, verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That verse should remind us of chapter 1, verse 1. It sounds very similar. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The author is using the very same language. The reason he's using the same language is is he's telling us, look, I want you to harmonize what you're going to hear now with what I said in in chapter 1. In other words, these aren't two separate accounts. These accounts are meant to be harmonized together. We get a full picture of what God has done in creation, especially when he created man. And this starts here in verse 4 with an interesting phrase that shows up 11 times in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. If you've read through the book, you've seen that over and over again. These are the generations of. Or some of your versions may say, this is the account of. All that is. It is the author's way of breaking his book up into sections. It's a superscription, which means that every time you see that, it's leading into what's going to follow. It's not a summary of what you just read. Okay, it is preceding words of what you're about to read. So he's saying that here's what you're going to read. You're going to read another account here, a more specific account of God's creating the heavens and the earth. Specifically, he reverses and says of the earth and the heavens. So let's take these a few verses at a time. Let's start with verses 5 and 6 where we get the setting. First, we're going to see the setting that we have before God creates man. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, for some of you, this is going to seem like overkill. It's going to seem like we're we're taking too much time on, on every little detail. So let me tell you why this is important. God is free. God alone is free. Here's what we mean by that. God answers to no one. God can do whatever he wants. And whatever God chooses to do, he can do it however he wants to do it. See, we're not free in that way. I mean, we say things like we're independent and we can do whatever we want. But, yeah, you can, but you might go to jail. There'll be consequences. There's going to be results. It's going to affect people. We can't really do whatever we want. We are all accountable. We're accountable to one another. We're accountable to our parents if we're children. We're accountable to the law. We're accountable to our government. We will be held accountable. Most importantly, we're accountable to God. God is not accountable to anyone. 
That means that God can do anything he wants to do. And here, God can do things exactly the way he wants to do them. So, when you read about how God is creating, remember, God didn't have to do it this way. He didn't have to do it this way. Therefore, it is good for us to ask, why is God creating this way? He is communicating to us in how he does things. So it's important for us to stop and look at verse 5 and 6. Okay, here's the setting. Why this setting? Why does God choose to create man this way? Why does God choose to create man from this place? So here we are, zoomed in. And I think what this is talking about, verses 5 and 6, this is talking about a very special piece of land where God chooses to make man. So we've just read about God's creating of all land, God's creating of the seas, the sky, the firmament, right? God's creation of all things. But now here, right, God zooms in on a very special piece of land. And he describes this piece of land. And it is on this piece of land where God is going to make Adam. And he's giving us a lot of details because God wants you to picture this. He doesn't just say, I made him. All right, that's it. Move on. He gives us a lot of details which he doesn't have to give us, about how he created man. So he zooms in on this piece of land that we find is a barren place. This place where God is going to form man, it's a barren place, right? No shrub, no bushes. It tells us that there's no shrubs, there's no bushes, because two reasons, it hasn't rained there yet. So while God has caused precipitation, we read about this in the creation account, apparently this barren place, it has not rained here yet. And obviously there's no man here yet to take the water that's already there and to to channel it and to irrigate it and to cause things to grow. And so it's a barren place. It's a barren place where Adam is created. As well today, there are barren places in the world today. Some of you have been to barren places. You've, 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 you've gone on vacation, not vacation probably. You've gone to, flown over them, seen pictures of them. Places where, unless you're Bear Grylls, if somebody dropped you there, you, you would die. You would die. No, no resources. You would just, you would shrivel up and die. This is the kind of place where God is going to form Adam. And I think what we'll see here is that God forms Adam in this barren place because then we see in verse 8, he's going to transport him. He's going to put him in the garden. I don't, know if he, I don't know if he beams him. I don't know if he flies him there. I don't know if it's a journey. We don't know. It doesn't give us any of those details. But we know that he starts in this barren place where there's no shrubs. And then there's dramatic contrast. I think Adam begins his life thankful. Because he's already being taken from what was barren to what was fruitful when God puts him in the garden. That we're going to read about in verses 8 through 14. The other thing that we know about this setting, it's interesting. It says that that while it hasn't rained there and it's a barren place, again, why are these details here? There was a mist that was going up from the land and it was watering the earth and it was covering the ground. I have no idea what that means. Absolutely no idea. But it would seem to say that man is going to be created from mud. So just get the picture and get the image. Here God is going to make man from dust. But we've also been told that where this dirt is and where this dust is, okay, it is covered with a mist and it's wet. Wet plus dirt equals mud. So maybe God wants you to gain an appreciation for mud. I don't know. But this is the setting that God gives. Picture that. 
He wants us to picture that. And then he's going to do this creative work of man in verse 7. One of the most important verses in your Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We hear from God about our identity as human beings. That is a question that everybody asks. What is my identity? Where have I come from? Who am I? Not what do other people say about me, but who really am I? Genesis 2, 7. Coupled with Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Answer these age-old questions about what our identity is. Who are we? Where did we come from? Am I valuable? Is there meaning in my life? Right? That's why we ask those questions. I want to know who I am, and I want to know where I came from, because that is how I determine whether or not I'm valuable. And I don't know whether or not I'm valuable. So I, I have, that's, right? That's why if you have or if you are depressed or deeply discouraged and you're feeling in unvaluable, you're feeling like you have no worth, your identity is unsettled for you. You don't really know who you are. And the reason you're there, right, you know this, is, is either because of abuse from other people, degrading abuse and things that have been said to you, or morbid introspection, whatever has gotten you there, though you're at a place of depression and discouragement, and you're questioning whether or not you are valuable. So these are the verses in the Bible that equip us to counsel people who are depressed and questioning whether or not they have any value. Because what we're going to read here is what God says about our value. Right? Many of us, we either feel valuable and, and worthwhile and have dignity we either feel that value or we don't feel that value. And where we land is largely because of what people have said to us. Especially people who we trusted to tell us who we really are. Right? That's why a young gal who grew up with a dad who just communicated and told her how worthless she was, she does not feel valuable. She does not feel valuable because of these words of others whom she trusted and believed would give her insight into who her identity is. And she actually grows up feeling like she's not valuable and she's not worthy. So what we have here in Genesis is an opinion of the one who truly matters. So the truth is, for some of you who were told that, 
and you were told that by people you trusted and loved, maybe friends or husbands or wives or moms or dads or brothers or sisters, you were told those things, they actually were, were opinions that they, they had no basis to give. And now God comes here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and God says, let me tell you what I think of you. And God says, you should listen to me because I made you. You were my idea. I thought of you. I formed you. I created you, even your inward parts. I gave you your soul. I breathed life into you. We're going to read about it. I formed you. And so here's what my commentary is on your life. So even when we're, our temptation is when we're counseling people who are discouraged and depressed, who are not feeling valuable, we want to tell them, no, you are, you are, and I love you, and you're great, and let's look at all your accomplishments, and look at all the wonderful things you do. But the problem is they know, they know they're just dust, and the Bible's going to tell them they're just dust. What is really helpful is to say, let me tell you what your creator and maker says about you. And this is what we have here. Friends, this, this arms us. This arms us in how we deal with one another and love and encourage one another when we are sinking deeply. Take these words to heart. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let us see how, how God created. James Boyce calls this verse dust and glory. We are dust and glory. We are dirt and glory. Look at the combination that comes out. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And we couple that with what we already know about our identity from chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 specifically, that God has created man in his image. So we've got these big ideas here about our identity. Image-bearing, formed, dirt, breathed into this is this is anthropology 101 this is who we are as human beings so let's look at these words let's start with dust we'll depress ourselves first and and work our way up we don't want to end with the dirt but god formed us out of of dust we we actually didn't evolve from apes we evolved from dirt if you want to say we evolved from something yeah, that was the step before us. Dirt. Remember, God does things the way he does them for a reason. You may read and wonder, why didn't God create us out of gold? <laughs> he could have. No one told God to do it out of dirt. God could have used gold, pearls. You can think of lots of, I mean, wouldn't that read a little better for us? And God formed us out of diamonds. I would say, oh yeah. Absolutely. That rings true. Because I'm beautiful and wonderful and close to perfect, so diamonds, that, that makes sense. Doesn't say he made us from diamonds, doesn't say he formed us from gold, formed us from dirt. That's what God chose to work with. Dirt. So what is dirt? There's actually a theology of dirt in your Bible. No books on it that I could find. But dirt Dust shows up all the time in Scripture. Here's what it doesn't mean, and then here's what it means. It doesn't mean evil. Dust is not evil. It doesn't mean nothing, because nothing is nothing. But it's next to nothing. 
When scripture talks about dust and when scripture talks about dirt, it is always a symbol. Plug it in everywhere you find that it is always a symbol of next to nothing. In other words, God formed us from something that was next to nothing. Nothing, it wasn't, nothing significant, nothing valuable, nothing beautiful. God didn't pull together these wonderful, beautiful resources and out popped you and me. There is nothing, this is what this is getting at, there is nothing, I know this runs against everything we hear from culture, but there is nothing intrinsically good in us. And it's pretty ridiculous that in an atheistic evolution model, we come up with value and worth. Because the truth is we have all evolved from nothing. So at what point did we go from being not valuable to valuable? We have value because of what we read here. But God makes it very clear right off the bat that I've made you from something that was next to nothing. So there is no intrinsic value. There is nothing intrinsically good. There is nothing intrinsically beautiful. There is nothing intrinsically wonderful. The resources that God used to form the first man, the resources that God used to form us are dirt. That's why when you die, give it a few years... And guess what you are? You're dirt. Just your soil. These bodies will all one day just be soil. Fertilizer. Plants will grow in us. That's it. God formed us from the dirt. Well, the next word to look at is this word formed. Which is very different very different from how God created everything else. Up until this point, God has created everything by, by speaking. Right? He's spoken everything into existence. And here, the image is God uses his hands to make man. He forms him with his hands. This is an anthropomorphism. Okay? This is, this is not... God is not a man, but this happens in the Bible where... But scripture will assign man-like qualities to God so that we can understand and get what it is that he's doing. So God is spirit. He doesn't actually have hands. But the image here is that there is an intimate and personal way that God creates mankind. He forms him with his hands. Everything else spoken into existence God gets his hands dirty, literally. God gets his hands dirty when he begins to shape man to be exactly what he wants him to be. Psalm 139, verses 14 and 15 speaks to this. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and here it is again, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Man was formed. What we get from the Psalms and the rest of our Bible is that while God has created means by which life is given to us, It is still God's hands that are behind our lives. 
that God's hands are, what is the language used in Scripture? You knit me together in my mother's womb. All of you were created by God. All of you were made by God. All of you have been put together by God. You were not an accident. Some of your parents told you that. <laughs> what a terrible thing to say. An accident to who? You, you and I, each of you were. You were thought up before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. God thought of you, designed you, made you, figured it all out, planned it out before he said, let there be light. And then he chose a moment in time for you to be born into this world. Or if you take the day you were born, most of you roughly back it up nine months. That is when God began to knit you together. It means that God made you. You're not an accident. I mean, it may have been an accident for your parents. Right? Whoops. Didn't see that coming. Unexpected. God not taken by surprise. It's like when we walk out, we read the weather forecast. It says it's going to be sunny. We walk out and it's raining. And we say, it wasn't supposed to rain today. Well, to who? <laughs> what do you mean it wasn't supposed I picture God saying, what do you mean it wasn't supposed to rain today? Now I planned for it to rain today a long time ago. But from a human perspective, right? Oh, this is random. This is chance. This is accidental. You are not that way. I mean, just this truth that God has formed you, if and when we get this, takes the bottom out from a lot of depression that we struggle with. You are made by God. He didn't have to make you. And there are things about yourself that you do not like. Some of those have been imported by sin, and that's on you and me. But some of those are just things you don't like about yourself. You look in the mirror and there's just ways that you wish you were made differently. Here's the deal. God made you exactly the way he wanted to make you. So you got to take that up with him. Because he is pleased. You are fearfully and wonderfully not evolved. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. As God did with Adam in the garden, he took his hands and he formed us exactly the way he formed us. Created from dust, God formed us, and then we learn that God breathed into us. God is life-giving. What this means, and try to understand this, try to conceive this. We think that we're alive today and we're breathing today because we've got an ozone layer and we've got good air and pollution hasn't gotten too bad and we're not in a famine right now and we've got lots of food. Those are all means that God uses to sustain you. But here's the deal. If God removes his breath from you now, you cease to have life. You are alive today because God breathed into you and God is breathing into you. And he has numbered your days. And there will come a day where he will separate your soul from your body. And we call that death. And it all started in the garden. God loved Adam and so God gave him this breath, spirit, wind. All the same word used in your Old Testament. Literally it says that this is how God created Adam. And he breathed into his nostrils. 
So the language here is like a resuscitating. God literally is putting his mouth on Adam's face and breathing life into him. Now let's remember, God did not have to create this way. Does God love you? God loves you. Did God breathe life into you and give you a spirit? He did. Is God breathing life into you right now? He is. This is the paradigm in Scripture. God loves and so God gives. God loves and God gives. God creates Adam. God loves Adam. God gives Adam life. God breathes a spirit into him. God loves. God gives. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. God loves. God gives. Gives you life. Gives you salvation. Gives you redemption. Gives you sanctification. Gives you glorification. You are loved by God. All identity issues, and we've got a lot of them because of things we know and things that have been said to us and things that have been done to us. We have got encyclopedias full of identity issues. And all of that is undone as we grow in our understanding of Genesis 2 verse 7. Simply put, hard to do for sure, but simply put in God's word. Yes, you were created from dust. But God says, I formed you. I made you. I made you just the way I made you. And I breathed life into you. I have come close and intimate and have kissed life into you. You are loved by God. Loved by God. And what we already know from what we learned in chapter 1 is that we are image bearers of God. God has made us very different, very unique amongst all His creation. As Psalm 8 says, right, we're a little lower than the angels. And here we learn through this dominion that we're much higher than animals. So we are the apex of God's creation, those loved by God. and He's created us to be image bearers of Him. That means a lot that we'll flesh out as we go through Genesis. But we are here as God's image bearers, His representatives on planet Earth. Representing Him and His greatness and His goodness and His glory and His grace. That's what we should be doing. Marred images because of sin. We'll get there in Genesis chapter 3. But image bearers nonetheless. It means that we have attributes that we share with God. We have capacities as human beings that nothing else in God's created order has. Namely, an ability to have a relationship with God, a sense of love, a sense of justice, a sense of mercy. Friends, this did not evolve. This did not come from nothing. This has been put in us by an intelligent, personal, great, glorious, loving, great creator. He made us this way and he made us this way to bear his image here on earth. And he takes it very seriously, as we talked about last week. Takes it very seriously. This is why we're not racist. This is why we're not sexist. And this is why we're not tree huggers. Because human beings are very, very important. And you can cut down a tree and make a house. We're good with that. Okay, and you can kill a cow and make steaks out of it. And we're not racist because we are all created in the image of God. And we're not sexist because male and female are created in the image of God. 
All these beliefs, all these understandings are rooted in our understanding that we're created in the image of God. That's why when James talks about how we use our tongue, he says, you better be careful how you use your tongue when you're speaking to other people. And he says, be careful because you are talking to those who are created in the likeness of God. Not because Bobby and Susie are something special, but because they are created in the image of God. Watch how you talk to the image bearers of God. It's why we're going to see and learn in Genesis chapter 9. It's why God has says, why do we have capital punishment? Because God said from very early on, you shall not shed the blood of another human being. And if you shed the blood of another human being, your blood will be shed. And his reason? They are an image bearer of me. Created from dust, yes. Or mud. But formed by God. Intimately formed by God. Breathed into by God. Created as his image bearer on this earth he created. This is our identity. Verses 15 through 17 answers the question not of who we are, but then what are we here to do? First, we've got to read verses 8 through 14. We'll just go through it quickly because we're going to talk about this garden in weeks to come. But here's what we find out. Verses 8 through 14. So see now, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he forms Adam over here, and now he brings Adam, and he sets him in this garden. This gift, this gift to Adam, for Adam to, to live in, and to steward, and to enjoy. And out of the ground, verse 9, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk more about those trees when we get to Genesis chapter 3. But there's two trees in the garden. God puts Adam in this wonderful garden with lots of trees, lots of berries, lots of fruit. And God says, you can eat everything here. Everything you want. But you need to stay away from this tree. You need to stay away from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, as we're going to see, shows up again in Revelation chapter 22. The tree of life is in the new heavens and the new earth. But here, God gives Adam one rule, and he gives him this rule to remind Adam that he is accountable to God. He is not a God. Not a God. You're accountable to me. I have an instruction for you. God loves him. He doesn't give him 150 rules. That's going to come later. Doesn't give them a hundred. Some of you, some of you parents, you just have a thousand rules. You just have a thousand rules for your kids at home, and there's your your home is no fun. You need to have less rules. We only just have a tree and say, "Don't eat that tree." Everything else is, it's, it's game. A river flowed, verse ten, out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold. So see, there was gold. He could have used gold, but, you know, he didn't. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx, stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So God makes a very special place for Adam and Eve to live. It's a, it's a paradise. 
Um, when it's called a garden, it's not uh, uh, the Western understanding of garden where you're picturing, you know, tomato plants and wire cages and marigolds. It, a garden means a, a wonderful, uh, beautiful, pristine place to dwell. And that's what God makes for him. He gives us some details, not a lot of details. We, we have no idea exactly where this was. We, we know where two of these rivers are today, at least, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Uh, we know that it was somewhere east of where the wandering Israelites were, whom Moses is writing to, because he says it's a garden in the east. We, we think it was probably up on a hill, because it looks like waters are flowing from this place. And, and we know that it was beautiful. And that's really all that we, all that we need to know. Now, verses 15 through 17. So God, we got the setting. We, God has made the man. He's created this beautiful place. He's put man in this place. But God doesn't just say, okay, now, free for all. Just, just do what you think is best. Just, just, just fulfill your life. He gives him, he gives him what, what the theologians have called the cultural mandate or the dominion mandate. He gave Adam a job to do. And what's interesting is you read through your Bible, this, uh, this is never ratified. This is never taken away. This never changes. In other words, what we're reading here has to fit into what we believe that our calling is today. So what God called Adam to do, God called mankind to do, which includes you and me. So we established who we are, but now what is the job that God has given us to do? And we read verses 15 through 17, along with chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. Again, panoramic, now zoomed in. But if we harmonize them, we see what it is that God is calling us to do. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So before we go to chapter 1, he says here, he just gives him a a few things. This mandate, okay, Adam, what am I supposed to do? What's my job? God says, I want you to work the garden. Keep the garden. Eat. Don't eat that. That's it. What he calls him to do. He puts him in this garden. He says, I want you to... I want you to care and work for this garden. I want you to be a gardener, but you're also to be a guardian. You're going you're to keep the garden, which means you're going to protect it. You're going to guard it. You're going to preserve it. And he says, I want you to enjoy this garden. Eat. Look at everything that I've, I've given you. And he gave him all these different trees and all these different fruits and all these different berries. He gave him taste buds to taste it. And he said, enjoy what I've given you. Eat all of this. But then he reminds him, but you are accountable to me. Let's be clear. You're not a God. And so I've put one thing here. I put one tree here that you are not to eat of. And it's this one. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. And we find out in Genesis 3 what that's all about. Now, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, we get a little more information. But here from there, God said to work the garden, keep the garden, eat, and don't eat that. Pretty simple. More instruction was in chapter 1. Let's read verses 28 through 30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. 
you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So Genesis 2, he puts them in the garden and says, work it, keep it, eat this, don't eat that. He also tells them, be fruitful. He's going to look at Adam and Eve and say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So let's try to put this all together. What is this saying? I'll try to give some practical application. What is the cultural mandate? What is this dominion that we're called to have? What is it that that God has charged us to do and the job that he's given? The first thing to notice is the very beginning of verse 28. Don't miss this. And God blessed them. Here's how it always begins. God blesses you. Right? If you're here today, God has blessed you. We sing of the ways that he blesses us. We've told you the ways that he's blessed you. But if you're here, God has blessed you. You're either thankful to him or you're indifferent to him, but it doesn't change the fact that he's blessed you greatly. So we're like Adam and Eve in that sense, in what we read in verse 26. God created them, God created us, God blessed them, God blessed us, and and here they are as his image bearers. And then this is his plan for them that he reveals. God's plan, his creation plan, is that the earth would be filled with people who love him and serve wisely as his representatives here on earth. I'll say that again. But this is God's creation plan. If we're putting all this together, the work that he's given Adam to do, this call to be fruitful and to multiply and to use the earth for good and to subdue the earth and have dominion over the animals. If we, if we put this together, here's the very least that we get, speaking generally. God's creation plan is that the earth would be filled with people who love him and serve wisely as his representatives here on earth. This is God's plan from the beginning. God is saying that I want a world filled with people who love and obey me. So I made you Adam and Eve. So go, work hard, be fruitful, multiply, use the resources you have here and fill the earth. This is God's plan. We're going to read in Genesis 3 how sin threatens to undo that, but then we're going to understand in the gospel of Jesus Christ how it is ensured that the world gets filled with people who love and obey God. So here's what you read. If you read your Bible, right? remember the Genesis 1 and 2 and the Revelation 21 and 22? You've got the very beginning of your Bible and the very end of your Bible. You've got everything in between where we read and where we live. Now in the very beginning, God says, this is my plan. And I'm charging you, Adam and Eve, family number one, I want you to get going. My plan is this, to have the world filled with people who love and obey me. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you fast forward to Revelation 21 and 22, which hasn't happened yet, what you find is a world filled with people who love and obey God. The new heavens and the new earth. What is the new heavens and the new earth? What is heaven? It is a real place. It is this earth, you understand, completely restored and renovated. It is the Garden of Eden that you read about in Genesis 2, the paradise. It is the Garden of Eden across the entire face of the globe, this earth. That is the new heavens and the new earth. 
And as Christians, we will all be united with Christians today, Christians that have gone before us, Christians that will go ahead of us, and we will be united with them, and we will be the sole inhabitants of this heaven, this new earth. And it's going to be great. When I was a kid, I didn't understand. I remember not understanding what heaven was going to be. I remember not wanting to go to heaven because I thought it was just going to have wings and we're floating on clouds and there's nobody else around, but it's happy, so I'm going to trust that it's happy and it's just this sort of ethereal existence and it sounded just terrible. <laughs> I can remember thinking, I don't want to go there. Friends, that is not heaven. Heaven is the new earth, like this earth. You will have capacities the way you have capacities now. You will not have the capacity to sin. We will have bodies like we have now, but they will be perfect and renovated bodies. And we will live there on the new heavens and the new earth forever. So God is saying, he's beginning this with Adam and Eve and saying, I want to see the world filled with people who love and obey me. One day the world will be filled with people who love and obey him. The question is, what are we doing now? What does that mean for us now? It means applying this scripture to our life today. It means applying the words of Jesus before he departed in Matthew chapter 28 and saying, what does this mean for us now? There's been a big debate for centuries over how far we will get in this age. In other words, God desires to have the world filled with people who love him and obey him. And we all agree that in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone will love him and obey him. But depending on your eschatological view and your, how, how you feel about the millennium, and are you post-millennial or amillennial or pre-millennial or pan-millennial, or whatever it is, there's different opinions over how far we're going to get with that in this lifetime. Some would say that planet earth as we know it will become largely Christianized, And things will get better over time. And it will be mostly filled with those who love and obey God. And then Jesus will come back and everyone's going to love and obey God. Others believe that it's more pessimistic and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And become increasingly secularized. And then God will come back. And then the new heavens and the new earth. Here's the deal. Whether you believe that things are going to visibly get better and better in this age, or you believe that things are going to get worse and worse in this age, our goal is the same. Regardless of whether or not we think it's going to go well or go poorly, our goal is that the whole earth would be filled with people who love and obey God. That is God's vision rooted in Genesis chapter 2. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I want an earth that is filled with people who love me and obey me. And we're in the middle of that, friends. And God is calling us to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to use the resources that God has given us to make disciples, to evangelize, to do missions, to preach the gospel, to raise godly families, to think about everything in terms of obeying the Lord in hopes that more and more people will love God and honor Him because we want to see, as God does, a world filled with people who love God and obey God. This is what God has called us to do. This is our cultural mandate. 
It is a hope. It is a prayer. And it is a living toward seeing a world filled with people who love Jesus Christ. Is this your heart? Is this your heart? Are you just concerned about your own salvation? Are you just concerned about your neighbor's salvation and not your own family's salvation? Are you just concerned with the salvation of people overseas and not the salvation of people who may be in your own church? Are you just concerned about the salvation of your family and not the salvation of people who are across the seas? Do we desire to see the whole earth filled with people who love and obey God? Let me just give a couple applications. There are many. And I'm speaking in very broad terms. You can see we could spend years just unpacking that and talking practically about how we do all things for the glory of God and how we move towards creating a world that is filled with people who love and honor God. So there's just a couple that I think I'm prepared to say, well, if this is our goal, if the goal, if this is our mandate, to see a world that is filled with people who love and obey God, then we must have a biblical understanding of children and discipleship. Let me speak briefly to each of those. And the reason I choose children and discipleship is because I'm thinking of cultural understandings of children and discipleship in and out of the church that run hard against a biblical understanding of children and discipleship in the church. So first, if this is our goal, okay, this is our goal. If our hope and desire is to see a world that is filled with people who love and obey God, we have got to have a good theology of children. Because we are the children of Adam and Eve. And the way God has moved this mission and this mandate forward largely is through the children of those who love him. We live in a culture today that that does not see children the way the Bible speaks of children. Those are the harsh realities. We don't want to say that we hate children as a culture. But we don't practice what we preach. And the decisions we make and the ways we live and the legislature we pass, we're creating a society that sees children as a burden and not as a blessing. And if our desire is to see a world filled with people who love God, we cannot think of children that way. Our hope is more children who love God, who have more children who love God, who have more children who love God, and we be fruitful and multiply. Some of you don't like the word multiply. You're thinking, does that mean? Yeah, that's what it means. That's what it means. Children are a reward from God. Children are a blessing from God. Children are not a burden from God. 
We live in a society that works very hard to try to prevent children. Children are either seen as a burden to get rid of or as some sort of life enhancement to add to our busy, hectic life to bring fulfillment. And so we have kids so that we can be fulfilled. And we have kids to to make our lives better. The Bible teaches this about children. Children are not for you. Children are not for me. Children are for God. They are from God and they are for God. We need to love children. Let's make that real practical. Have children. Lots of them. We're not going to go Duggar on this. Some of you get that. I'm not saying that we don't think, that we don't plan, that we don't use wisdom. Okay, so don't read between the lines of things that I'm saying and assume that I'm saying more than I'm saying. But we do need a culture amongst Christians that loves children so much that we want to have lots of children. We've got five. And we're looking for more. Many of you young people, you're going to be making some big decisions over the next three, four, five, ten years. Our encouragement would be to you to have and to raise children. To know and to love God. That His kingdom may grow. Listen, we've got evangelism too, and I'm going to get there in a minute, but there was no evangelism in the garden. Okay, how was God growing his kingdom for centuries? God was growing his kingdom through families, having children, and teaching them about how good and great and gracious God is. Don't worry about the population problem. There's plenty of room. We've got an acre and a third. Put some of the kids out there. <laughs> More kids. Now, some of you, some of you can't have kids. I know this. Some of you are in that category where, where you hear this and, and it makes you sad because you, you want children and you love children. And praise God, you've got a good biblical understanding and you see them as valuable and blessings and wonderful. And some of you, either now or in the past, you, you could not or you cannot have children. The truth is you can have children. You can adopt a child. Bring a child into your home, or you can love other people's kids. <laughs> You've been here for any amount of time. You know there's plenty of kids around here that need some love. Plenty of kids that need discipling. Plenty of kids that need training. Plenty of kids that, that need to hear the gospel. Plenty of kids and parents that need to be drawn alongside and helped and encouraged because we love kids. And we see a mom is pregnant, we're happy and we're excited and we love that. We see a family is adopting and bringing children in, we love that and we're excited. I've got four biological children. I don't even like these titles. I've got four biological children and I've got one adopted child and I feel absolutely no different about any of them. God has connected us the same. So the point is not, right... I want to have children so that I can be fulfilled, so that I can have my dreams come true. The point is children are for God, and we need more children, and we love children, and children are precious, and they're a gift from God, and they're a reward from God, and we want to see them, and we want to smile, and we want to love them, and we want to care for them, and we want to nurse them, and we want to teach them, and we want to train them, and we want to disciple them. We want them to come to know Jesus, and we want them to go. We want them to fill the earth. 
you live, we live in, in a culture, this is, this is very clear, a culture that is redefining marriage, a culture that is redefining children. And here's what's happening. Just think about this. Here's what's happening in the world we live in, the country we live in. Because of the redefining of marriage, because of the redefining of how we feel about children, there is less and less marriage. There is less and less heterosexuality. There is less and less children. This is the truth. So I just want you to think about how this works and how God's world gets filled with people who love him. I want you to think of one of the ways this happens, very simply put. So as society, secular society is moving in that direction where there is less marriage and less children, what happens? Do the math if Christians have children and love children and raise children to know and love him. What does the world look like in a hundred years? What does it look like in 200 years? But what does it look like if Christians adopt a mindset that says we don't want kids. Kids are a burden. They're a distraction. They're a problem. Nothing happens. The landscape doesn't change. And we're not being fruitful. We're not multiplying. And we're not filling the earth to the glory of God. We need to change how we think. You're going to read about Jacob and his family. They go into Egypt. They're a family about 70 strong. And a few hundred years later, they come out millions. So that's the vision, Veritas. <laughs> we got about a hundred, so we're already up on Jacob. Fast forward 400 years, maybe we got millions. Maybe billions, who knows. Discipleship. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I'll read the verse, but I would just encourage you in this way. Think discipleship everywhere. Think discipleship everywhere. We tend to think of discipleship as just evangelism, sharing the gospel, handing somebody a tract. We tend to think of discipleship as a program that we run in our church. We tend to think of discipleship very formally and something I need to get into someday. We need to understand discipleship as learning to love God in all things. We are disciples. We are followers of Jesus. We are learning throughout our life how to love, and by love we mean obey, how to love God in all things. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It sounds very similar to what we read in Genesis chapter 2. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations. Do you hear the be fruitful and multiply? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now we tend to stop there and think that discipleship is just getting people in the door and getting people to become Christians. But that's not what it is. It is teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So discipleship is learning to love God, learning to obey God in all things. And we must think of discipleship that way if we're going to be fruitful and be a world that is filled with people who love and obey God in all things. So there's no room for compartmentalized Christianity. Okay, where it's something I do on Sunday or it's Wednesday night or it's in my morning and my devotions. This undoes everything in your life. And this speaks to everything in your life. Learning to love God in all things means that we rethink everything. 
We see dating biblically. We see marriage biblically. We see sex biblically. We see child rearing biblically. We see cooking meals biblically. We see folding laundry biblically. We see aesthetics biblically. We see work biblically. We see voting biblically. It affects everything. Discipleship is we're learning to love God in all things. And Jesus said, go. He says, let me expand on this. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Let's see an earth filled with people who love God and obey God, enter sin, threatens to destroy that. Jesus comes and says, okay, the call is still to see the world filled with people who love and obey God. You need to point people to me. Point them to me. Teach them to obey, but then they're going to realize real quick they don't obey, they can't obey, but there's forgiveness for not obeying and there's help to obey more. That we may move toward being a people who love and obey God. So apply this to your life. This cultural mandate is for you and it's for me. We're seeking to build a world and build a culture where we are not on the throne, but Christ is on the throne. And we're looking to Him and we're submitting to Him. And we're looking to see what His Word has to say about everything. Christians are notorious for saying the Bible is silent on much more than it is actually silent on. It speaks to your marriages. It speaks to your child rearing. It speaks to your hobbies. It speaks to your work habits. It speaks to your relationships. It speaks to your finances. It speaks to all of this. And we must grow in learning what God requires of us. And we do that in response. What God called us to do a long time ago when he spoke to our first father. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, point them to me. And then teach them to observe all that I have commanded. That, what is the goal? The world may be filled with people who love and obey God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, teach us and and help us. Help us to apply what we're taught. Help us to believe what we're taught. Help us to grow and to become more like Jesus. Jesus was the perfect image of you, God. He reflected you perfectly. He was you. God, we long to be like Jesus, to love others the way he loved, to obey the way he obeyed, to be merciful the way he was merciful. Well, God, you know that we're broken and we're sinners. So we ask, Lord, again, that you continue. Please forgive us for our sin. Give us mercy. And then help us by your Holy Spirit to break the power of sin in our lives and to live lives that, that love you, that obey you. We pray this time of communion that you would use this time to draw us into you, that we would commune with you, spend time with you, remember you, think of you, and apply your great truth to our hearts. We pray this in the great, perfect name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.
Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.